this is a special collaboration between the Cult Hackers podcast and the World of Work project. So I'm Stephen. I'm James. And I'm Jane. And uh, this is our second episode that we're talking about, I suppose, cultic practices in the workplace um, is perhaps the, the easiest way to describe it. We're looking at how we might find things that cults do in the workplace and why that might happen and what we can do about that. Uh, there's a couple of points that we're sort of looking at this as we go through the podcast, which is how to notice unhealthy cultic workplaces and how managers might avoid falling into cultic practices. So that's really what we're going to be focusing on over the next uh, few episodes. Well, it's really great to have you back. It's nice to see you. How are you? Are you well? Uh, yeah, I'm doing great. Um, I can't speak for Jane. She'll speak for herself in a minute, but it's been a great start to the year. It's early 2022 now. Um, and I'm excited about having these conversations. I think, mm. you know, focusing a little bit on what we can do as individuals to notice the encroachment of cultic practices around us in work can be really helpful, particularly if we can go on and think about what we might do about it if we notice that. And, and mm. again, that anchor about what can we do as leaders to stop ourselves falling into this pieces uh of of sort of traps is, is helpful as well um yeah and i'm you know i'm quite a lay person on this topic so it's great to be able to explore it so yeah all good brilliant welcome jay yeah hello i'm really excited to be uh back and having a conversation about this uh like james uh it's been a good few weeks but definitely really keen to talk about this i think uh since uh, we started thinking about this topic in collaboration. I've, it's really interesting. I spot things now and mm. I'm like, hmm, yes. how do I feel? Is that the thin end of the wedge? Do I, do I worry about that? Or is actually, and things that I would have previously celebrated, definitely I'm like, hmm, not sure how I feel about that anymore. So looking forward to mm. see if uh, you guys have got different thoughts and also hear a little bit about uh, what you found when you've been looking into it. Great. Yeah. So we, on our first episode, we, it was more of a kind of uh, finding our way through the subject, wasn't it? We introduced the subject. We talked about why we're interested in, in that. If you've not caught that episode, it's definitely worth catching that first. Um, and I think a few things came out of it really. And afterwards we discussed, you know, how we're going to structure these conversations and we've come up with three overarching subjects that we're going to look at. We're going to look at leadership and how leadership relates to this topic. Um, and we're going to do that today. So we'll cover that in a moment. We're also going to look at uh, finding purpose through work and how that might relate to certain cultic practices. And finally, voice and the ability to speak up. I say finally, we don't actually know whether it's going to be finally. We don't know where this is going. Um, but those are the the episodes that we've kind of planned, aren't they? Yeah, and that's half of fun, just seeing where we go with Absolutely. it. So, so yeah, it'll be good. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so we said we'd look at leadership today, and that was uh, that was the one that I was going to have a look at. So, yeah. So how do we how do we approach this? What what's the the first question we need to to ask, I suppose, when it comes to leadership and how that relates to cults and possibly cultic practices in the workplace? Yeah, that's a great opening question. Firing straight over to us, I guess. One of the things that's in my mind, and, and I don't really know if it's something that you've looked into, I, I, I wonder, as a broad question, whether there's something about the, the sort of role of leaders and role of managers as agents often for ultimate owners and other interests, if there's something in that positioning of their obligation to effectively, you know, maximize 
the output from a resource that leads towards uh, a desire, subconscious or otherwise, to kind of harness some of these powers of cultic behaviors and bring them into the workplace. So I don't know if that's something that you've thought about, that, that sort of Absolutely. positioning of yeah. the role of leadership in itself. Yeah, that is um, that is a really important question, isn't it? Um, yeah, so I, I suppose... Um, uh, an important place to start and, and it's a bit boring but I always try to understand what are we talking about so um, if we think about what what do we mean by leadership I suppose we need to we need to clarify that first all the all the wisdom around leadership it, it tends to be around having a clear vision it's about communicating that vision it's about having a clear goal it's about motivating and influencing people to achieve that vision uh, would you guys agree that that's kind of what we as coaches and consultants and managers would would talk about as leadership? Yeah, I think I think certainly from my perspective, it is. I think, and it, it's interesting. Um, one of the questions that I keep coming back to around leadership specifically, but especially in in the frame of what we're talking about in cultic practices, is how much the person that goes into a position that has those responsibilities that you've just talked about is the same person and unaffected by the experience of those practices, uh, of those activities. And I think um, whilst I absolutely agree that's what that's what we're talking about with leadership, I think there is something really interesting about how the things they do relate to the person they are, were, are, and then evolve to be in that process. And I think, so when I when when we talk about leadership, yes, those are the activities of it. But also, I think there is an invisible thing that goes on when someone is, I guess, emotionally responsible in some ways for other people in any sense, um, or uh, either has been given or feels that responsibility to shape a, a large part of someone else's life. And in this case, we talk about work and organizations. And I think um, so for me, there's that little piece also about that sort of invisible responsibility that gets worn very differently depending on the leader. Do you know what? I, I think that's a really interesting point. And I think that, that sort of, in my mind, brings us back a little bit to some of my opening thoughts on this, which are that as leaders, that identity piece and who we are and who we become through the role of leadership is really important. And again, you know, you talk there about our obligations to others, our responsibilities to others and things like that within leadership. And I think we can be drawn in different areas of responsibility. We can be drawn towards the people that we are leading and, and, and you know, mobilizing to a course of action. Or we can be drawn to connecting with our organization or those above us who are influencing us potentially in a different way. So there's this sort of dynamic pulling tension in different mm. directions on us and that can affect us and, and how we then go on to behave as well, I'd say. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think um, there is this there is this tension there. I suppose ultimately, when you're um, when you're in a leadership role, whether you count that as being a senior leader, part of the senior leadership team, or um, you know, leadership has this uh, this sense that it's not only managers that need to be leaders. Actually, you know, in theory, anyone can lead because leading is essentially uh, you know the most simplistic, reductive definition of a leader is someone who has followers so that is essentially what we're talking about and actually anybody can do that um so there's this thing about influence um and vision and so on i think traditionally in the workplace that the tactic if you like the way of doing that has been quite a transactional one so it's been a case of as a as a manager as a leader we have a transaction with our 
both our employer and also the people that report to us that says, you know, my work is valued at X. If I fulfill this role, I will get paid. And there's some other benefits that accrue with being associated with this workplace. So this is a transactional relationship between the manager and the or the leader and the follower. Um, and that can obviously go all the way up the the organizational structure. Um, but I think over the last few years, or 10, 20 years, certainly I've noticed it, there is a an increase in a desire to perhaps do a bit more than that. So the idea that management or leadership is just about managing that transaction has fallen out of favor uh, quite a bit and and I you know so doing the research on this there's quite a lot of stuff around this um, so the the alternative if you like to transactional management is transformational leadership so this is saying actually it's much more enlightened if you can create a workplace that is um, is a place where people want to work is a place where they can find meaning and purpose um, a place where they can feel happy and actually that's that's what we want workplaces to be and the good news is if we do that then that actually increases our profitability because people are more interested in what they do they're more flexible they have greater engagement they have greater enthusiasm motivation and all those good things that as a business we want because we want to to have uh, people working for us who yeah who, who show those qualities um, and so we've moved into much more of a what might be seen as a much more progressive way of managing. So it's not just about these are the rules, stick to these rules, you get paid, then go home and you come back next day, it all happens again. We're trying to say workplaces should be better than that. Workplaces should be places where we find some meaning, where we have a, a sense of community, where we have a sense of purpose. Um, we We are able to develop and actually, the leader is helping that to to happen. Would you would you agree that that's kind of the direction that we've seen to go in? So it's a little bit like you've been stalking my social media this week because I <laughs> I went off on one in social media last week about yeah. how leadership is being used to replace management, and actually, you need both. I think good organisations need both. I agree. But I, I, it, what you've said has just made I guess it's moved my thinking on quite a lot. In, in a very short space of time, which is, I think we're missing, when you listed out those things that leadership is, I think we're missing the responsibility to set boundaries of what's okay, mm. right? And I, I really, it's only just hit me that what really irks me about this move to everyone being a leader, which of course, in principle, sounds like a great thing and we can all take more ownership and it will be, all be a much um, holistically happier place to work, that the slight and we uh, we've talked before about the the idea of red flags, right? I've mentioned this yep. that I think I see there's these little flags that raise mm -hmm. that make me nervous, or I see in practices, and I'm like, oh, if we're not careful and someone isn't man managing the boundaries, then that could go a bit wrong. That's that's what mm. I mean when I say red flag. And this for me is a red flag, right? Mm. When people when organisations start talking about yes, we're going to make everyone happy, and isn't it coincidentally brilliant that it will be very profitable? Yeah. Well, that is a bit of a coincidence, and yes, there is some <laughs> evidence for that, but mm. the risk to that for me, is this idea that if people are given the label of leader, whether they are in a leadership position or not, and if they try and self-identify as leader, what they straight away do is they think about followers. 
right? How do I how do I make these people my followers, or how do I shape, influence, address their behaviors such that they follow me in the way that I want to do something? And as soon as I start thinking about that language, and as soon as I start thinking about someone in a team who is a manager, and managers have very specific roles. It's about the organization of resources, right? Mm-hmm. It's the yep. org, and, and brilliant managers are amazing. Yep. But as soon as we start using this language, I get nervous. I get really nervous because I don't think people walk into most situations determined to become cultic leaders or determined to make things worse. I think they probably go in with good intentions quite often and it all goes a bit wrong. So I think there's something really, really interesting about saying, yes, I think that is a trend. Yes, it worries me a bit. And particularly it worries me because I meet some brilliant, well-intentioned, quite early careerists who think they're going to take over the world and are very frustrated when their particular view of how to lead their team doesn't meet the needs of their teams, Mm. right? And they're quite, you know, they might be in their first management position, for example, but they've been sold this story that they're meant to be this transformational, inspirational Mm. leader that their entire team is going to love and respect and and, and throw down their loyalty to. And it's, it's such an oversimplified view, but if you resource heavily leadership training and inspirational softer training and you take away people's mm-hmm. skills at managing res- and, and, and arranging resources and supporting people in a practical yep. sense, I think that's where you end up. So yeah, I do think mm-hmm. it's happening and it does worry me, I guess is the, sh- is the short answer. James? Yeah, I, I echo in my thinking a lot of what you speak about there and listening to you talk about this, I, I can't help but feel that this language is kind of mirroring broader social trends and changes so you know if you think about things like say the advertising world my understanding i'm not an expert is in the old days we used to tell people about a product and they you know tell them price availability what it does and people would make a decision now we don't now we'll show people a picture of a lovely couple on a beach having a wonderful time and sell them insurance or sell them a car or sell them something totally unrelated and and so so the the awareness that we have of a role of influence um, on the actions of others is uh, increasing. And, and I think it's sort of reached its tendrils into all aspects of life. And I think if you look at things like social media and, and the world that, that's grown up there, I think we've seen this increased prevalence of influence, influencers, that language, and, and the, the dominance and power um, of what is effectively social influence when we're living in effectively a sort of informational economy is, is really important. So So we can see commodification of influence as as a product in the broader world i i believe and i believe that is um maybe glorifying what influence is or, or certainly turning influence itself into a sort of seductive um trait that, that one can have or an ability that one could have and and i think there are good and bad aspects to to the awareness of this that's out there but i but my guess is that there is something alluring about having influence. And that's been the case forever, right? But yeah, I think increasingly that's the case. And and I feel that that is leeching its way through our understanding of what leadership and management is and, and embedding itself, in, in my view, in a not such a great way within the way that we lead and manage our organizations. Now, of course, the inverse of, of leadership in this way is to not be a leader or to not have influence. Mm-hmm. And, and how difficult it is, is it to let go of yourself and say, okay, I don't need to lead an influence, but maybe I can have barriers to being influenced myself. How do I maintain my identity and autonomy in that space? Um, so I'd love to explore that a little bit more. And one thing that you spoke about, Jane, was about 
you know, we don't focus on this creation of boundaries. And I think there's something really interesting in there about who we think is accountable for the creation of boundaries and where do we allocate that responsibility within our structural chain. So, you know, you go to places like France and, and you can't send an email at the weekend. Hmm. Great. You've got a limited working hours weeks. You go to the US and it's a very different world. You go to developing nations, it's very different again. So so where is that allegation of power for boundary setting and and how does that sit is something else that's interesting mm. to talk about so that was a bit of a rant there sorry about that back <laughs> to you Stephen. well no jane did you have another thought on that you look like well, you wanted no, to i like I, so I, I forgive me i'm obsessed with boundary conditions at the moment um because <laughs> it, it it occurs to me um when i've been thinking about this subject since we last spoke about it i keep thinking about the whose job is it to stop when we do see the problems. So yeah. if we see something we're a bit worried about, and I've been thinking about this both in this terms, but also just generally in organizations, like when we see hints of things we don't like, where do we do it now? So there are systems in organizations quite often. There's a risk register. There might be meetings that have a risk agenda item. People supposedly talk about it, but we also know they don't. And so I'm really interested, whose job is it to like helicopter above and think, where is there an absence of boundaries and boundary management that we need mm. to think about? Now, sometimes I, I think that's interesting from a, a real simple products and services point of view, where we see organizations just decide they want to do everything, for example, and then it all goes horribly wrong mm. because they aren't focused enough. But particularly within behaviors and the way people are recruited and retained and managed, I think I think this question relates so strongly to the subject about leadership for so many reasons. So for pay, where pay has become no ceilinged in some sectors because of effectively the influence desire to have the single best person versus, you know, some of the best people. Mm. And I, the question is, I know quite often leaders don't have that remit, but should they? Because actually sometimes it sits above them. It sits above them within the governance structures. And, you know, I think there's a really interesting piece there about who has the power to do that and who should be doing that. And maybe those aren't the same questions or stroke answers, but I definitely think when I think about the organizations I've worked in and the leadership rooms that I have sat in in senior leadership teams and the people I have looked to to draw the line where people have been pushing too far on something, the person I look to is the person who's ultimately responsible for running the organization in that room. So whoever's the most senior person in that room. But quite often it has not been that person that's done it where it's been done. Yeah. And I I think that's really interesting because to me that's that's leadership, right? It's about saying <laughs> enough. Yeah. Well, that's a very good that's a very interesting question, yeah. Um yeah, I think we need to come back to that. Um I I think the problem for me is that it almost feels like the way that this is being framed. So if we think about this idea of transformational leadership, um, the way that this is framed, it's that wh why are you worried about boundaries anyway? Because um, this is all good. You know, why would we want to, why would we worry about boundaries? Because, you know, why would you want to not work in a great place where, you know, people are filled with purpose and uh, actually want to go to work and, um, yeah, don't feel that it's a chore actually want to come in on the weekends because they enjoy it so much you know why would you not want this sort of place and it feels to me like um that's where we are at the moment with a lot of these these questions so nobody's i'm sure it's not true in every organization but i think there is a danger that um 
the idea of creating a workforce who are so totally engaged in the project is such that we, uh, you know, why would we want to stifle that? Actually, that is the goal. And what we've not, we've not got enough of that. So why would we want to stop it? Um, and I, I wanted to, before you come back on that, uh, Jane, I wanted to, uh, so part of my research on this subject has been looking at both the way that leaders work in cults and the way that leaders work in businesses and particularly in this area of transformational leadership. So just reading a definition of what makes a cult, this is from uh, Yanya Lalich's book, Take Back Your Life. So Yanya Lalich, Dr. Yanya Lalich is a quite a well-known authority within the area of cults and uh, coercive control and so on. Um, this is a definition actually that she borrows from the International Cultic Studies Association. Um, and they say that a cult is a group or movement exhibiting great or excessive devotion or dedication to some person, idea or thing, and employing unethical, manipulative or coercive techniques of persuasion and control um, designed to advance the goals of the group's leaders to the actual or possible detriment of members, their families or the community. Now, clearly, if everybody knows that these activities are excessive or unethical or are going to be to the detriment of the people i think at that point yes your senior management team if they're not completely enthralled by this idea they they should be the ones that notice and say yeah where are the boundaries for this but i i think the problem is is you don't see it as that at the time you don't see it as unethical you don't see it as um in the uh, not in the interest of the team you, you see it as being a good thing which is the is the risk uh, i think why we can end up slipping into that i don't know what you think about that so so i'd like to come in right away and the word that springs yeah. to my mind is sort of alchemy right like what <laughs> what this is being framed as is the turning of mm. you know baseness into into gold or or, or yeah you know, a perpetual energy machine, we are creating value immediately by doing this. And and what seems to be in the minds of people happening is we are creating value that we give to the employees. We are giving that sense of, of identity and, and, and purpose and involvement and, and all those motivational things. It's a great place to be. I'm doing mm. meaningful, rewarding things. And that in itself is this creation of a valuable thing that we're allocating to employees in itself. So so I think there is something in there about that that belief that we are are entering into an exchange that seems like a pretty fair one if you don't look at it too much. It seems like we're creating something great and giving it to employees and we're getting some great outputs to help meet our goals as well. And I think there's that that sort of ability to be blind to what can really be an unfair allocation of benefits of this this uh these outputs and, and i think that's mm. where it comes down to for me is this ability to lead towards exploitation which is mm. which is the ultimate end state of this so if if you know if you tell everybody that they've got the you know the, the magic beans and those are wonderful things and they work really hard for those magical beans and that's great as long as everyone believes it but as soon as you realize that the beans don't grow into anything then it's not going to help you and if that's where you end up with that um, the value of purpose that you receive as an employee, then it is an exploitative exchange. And that mm. for me is where the sort of moral dilemma lies with it. Mm. Yeah. And I would, I, from my, from my perspective, 
if you're going to be extreme about it, any organization that's not owned by the workers in some senses is falling under the definition you speak of and is exploitative in the sense that what you're effectively doing is asking people to put more effort into a business where they are not getting the reward. Someone else is benefiting from it, right? So at very least, even at simplest terms, they're losing time, which is a detriment likely unless they have deep family issues, is a detriment to their immediate circle and they're not getting anything for it. And I think what's really interesting about what you said, and James has heard me tell this story before on the World of Work Project, is there is a team in particular that I, I led that we wore our overwork on our sleeve like a badge of mm. honour. Mm. And I was so proud of them for the level and commitment that they showed. And I look back and I think, where was my leadership at stopping them and sending them to bed mm. when it was midnight mm. and they were still in the office? Mm. Where was my role modelling when I was still in the office at two in the morning and cycling in because I was missing the drain? I, I still say those things and I still struggle to say them and not secretly feel proud because it was so wired into me mm. that the meaning and purpose of working for a nonprofit organization that I cared about and doing my best for them and, and sacrificing, and I, I use that word very carefully, sacrificing things of my life outside of work for my work and asking others to do the same. At the time, I believed that was leadership. Mm. And now... Mm. Now I just think it's rubbish. Um, and I think, you know, the point you make, do we know at the moment, is is really speaking to my point that I was I, I was kind of like raising at the beginning, which I'm still wrestling with, which is people don't walk into these positions thinking I'm going to be the good guy or the bad guy. We no, all think right. we're going to be the good guy. Mm. And we often mm. think we're the good guy throughout the whole thing. Yeah. Um, how, and what is it that we can learn about the flags? And what is it that we can learn about our own practices that yeah. would allow us to be a little bit more careful and not yeah. end up in that end state. And I think there's, for me, that's what's really interesting about boundaries and conversations about boundaries. Because even I think when a leader, you've got people around you, you can have those conversations. And this is where I think diversity becomes really important with, the, with people around leaders. Mm. And this is when, again, red flag, leader has people all like them, so they're all going to agree about stuff, mm. is where are the conversations to say, I, I think we need some boundaries, even if those boundaries are really extreme, but how do we decide what they are and who am I including in that conversation as a leader such that I have a really candid view of the people that are meant to be following me and understanding what's in their best interest. And and the danger is that that can feel slightly paternalistic, right? Mm. As a leader, oh, mm. I'm going to set boundaries and decide how hard you work. Mm. <laughs> that that in itself doesn't sound great, yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's definitely a conversation I think that needs to happen and doesn't. And I think... I think I, I've seen leaders that end up in this place that feel slightly cultic, maybe not to yeah. that extreme. And I don't think they meant to be there. I don't think they ever meant to get there. And somehow they've, they've wrestled themselves. I think you see it particularly with founders of charities hmm. where they're now so central mm -hmm. to the organization that yeah. the branding, the comms department can't even get, like unpick them off. Hmm. Um, and so I think, I think, you know, thinking about the tools that people could use to have those conversations would probably help everybody. I think. Maybe I'm being unfairly nice to leaders who do deliberately go into it, be exploitative. I don't know. Well, I, I, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure some do. So we, um, there's some evidence that um, senior leadership um, teams have a higher percentage of psychopaths than than the average population. You know, the general population. So I'm sure that does happen. But I don't, I don't think we're talking about that today. I don't think that's the that's the the, the major issue. Um, it's I think we're 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 identifying that there's a there's almost a risk that we sleepwalk our way into these structures that 
actually create that sort of behavior and and even um i think boundaries are really important but maybe there's something that needs to happen before boundaries which is the way that the whole thing is framed a really interesting book that i i would recommend uh reading if you're interested in this subject is by dennis turish called the dark side of transformational leadership a critical perspective so he is coming at this from a critical um academic perspectives therefore um his obvious emphasis is going to be on power relations and and where the power lies but i think it's a really important question because there is a risk that um so transformational leadership i don't know how much you remember about this jane from the uh the masters we did um it was an area of, of intense interest for me and I've, I've revisited it a lot of times since but um the the idea of transformational leadership is tied up with this idea of charismatic leadership and depending on on who you agree with there are either two very similar things or charismatic leadership sits inside the higher level umbrella of transformational leadership but this the idea here is that um a charismatic transformational leader is all about creating alignment between people's individual values and needs and wants with the organizations there's a theory called self-concept theory that's been developed by well quite a lot of people over the years but has been looked at in line with this by uh, Shamir House and Arthur and they identify two precepts um, that relate to how our self-concept works Uh, So the first precept is that we have this hierarchy of social identities and values. So, you know, at the highest level, we might see ourselves as a as a human being and then as a a partner or as a a friend or then as a maybe a mother or a father or a brother or a sister. And and, uh, you know, these are like a high. This is a hierarchy of of identities that all sit together and all align. And we're always trying to make sure they they align if they don't align so if we're one thing at work and a different thing at home then this causes a discomfort in us and an anxiety so we're, we're always trying to align them and then the second precept which in in some respects is the most important one in this context is that people are intrinsically motivated to enhance and defend their self-esteem so we have this feeling of need for self-esteem and we are all always trying to enhance and defend that and we do that based around feelings of competence power a sense of achievement and our ability to cope with the environment so actually what what charismatic and transformational leaders are doing is they are giving their workforce opportunity to both align their identities with the thing that the leader wants them to do in the workplace and secondly that they're helping them defend and enhance their self-esteem through feelings of competence power achievement and ability to cope um so this is digging in quite deeply i would suggest to some quite fundamental concepts of self and it feels like so i've i feel partly conflicted on this because i train this stuff and i think it's 
important to understand it, but it's also, it runs some quite high risks, I think. What do you think? So it's interesting, isn't it? I I was reading before, before we came on, I was reading a paper by the the author that you were just describing as the book. Uh, yeah, I, I was reading like, mm. yeah, and I was reading a paper that, that he, where he, he definitely, I mean, he goes hard, right? He does, I, yeah, I, yeah. I like I like the lens with which he he attacks the mm. question, and he definitely, you know, it's a very uh, there's a couple of examples of language that he's de- I think being quite deliberately provocative. Yeah. But I, I I would go as far as to say some of the corporate communications chains that I've been part of, particularly during change processes, where the the leaders of the whole organisation their voices have become amplified to such a point where um dissent and i think this is where leadership and change processes interact really dangerously mm. um dissent is seen as anti-organization yeah it's seen as resistance it gets framed as resistance quite often mm. and mm. then what happens is i think you end up with the leader's voices being assumed to be accepted and no one no one says oh i don't agree with them so yeah. everyone assumes everyone else agrees with them and i think you know i think that absence of any kind of debate in an mm. organization is generally I think a really unhealthy thing but I also think that, that he makes a really interesting point in the paper that I thought was really interesting about the way that the academic world interacts with leaders right and the very nature of writing about transformational leadership and what it is makes CEOs think that's what they're meant to be doing mm. and then they replicate those, some of those practices because mm. oh you know, in all of the literature and all the teachings and all of our training, like you say, we talk about this is what transformational leadership looks like. So CEOs go away going, well, I'm not a leader unless I am my narrative of, of how our organization is going to forward is the one that everyone's repeating mm-hmm. ad infinitum and agreeing with me. And 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 I think that's dangerous. And and taking your your um, example of dissent a bit further. So so what cults do with dissent is because you are so your personhood yourself your identity is so wrapped up in this organization the the idea of dissenting and losing that identity losing that opportunity to be part of that cult that group is so terrifying to you that that's the coercive pressure that is put put upon you to not dissent so this is more than just in a workplace you know having the courage to stand up and say actually i don't agree with that you know i mean that's hard enough anyway because of our social norms and it's never easy to be the the one dissenting voice at least the first one but what cults do is they take that a step further because there is a threat involved in doing that and the threat is losing the love of the leader or the social group that you're part of, this protective, all-encompassing belief system that you've now that you're now a part of, that the worry of losing that means that you are simply not going to disagree, because that's the risk you run. Um, so that's how cults do it, and looking at some really, you know, I suppose quite some famous cases of organisations that have descended into um either cult-like status or you know have, have completely imploded such as enron for instance and we work um, these are organizations that essentially created situations where everybody's 
being was tied up with this group and and that's not a surprise if the idea is to create meaning and purpose for your staff so if you're creating meaning and purpose for your staff where this is the place that you go to for those very important things that the risk of losing that becomes frightening um, and that's part of the coercion yeah i was going to say i guess with that you know the risk of, of losing that leads to what could be termed loyalty and we see loyalty appearing in so many different places and and mm. at its extreme i would argue that loyalty is is the willingness to do things that you don't think are right for the people that you are doing them with uh, the willingness to absorb your own sort of moral balance to to fit in and and, and be loyal to the organization or whatever it happens to be that, that you're a part of and i can see that as a really difficult um negative outcome i guess one of the things that that i'd like to sort of circle back around on with this is the scalar nature of, of this and or, or the spectrum based nature of this and you know when i sit here with a naive hat and think about aligned identities and the chance to defend and enhance my self-esteem those are valuable things for an individual i would argue there is presumably and I don't know this, I, presumably there are impacts on well-being for these people. There are impacts on, uh, you know, their ability to, to hold their heads up, be part of their community, connect with their friends and families. So it feels like there's probably some benefit in those things for individuals. And how, how we decide where that sliding scale is, is a question we've come back to a few times. But I, I guess I just wanted to return a little bit to maybe acknowledge that there, it, it feels like there's probably some benefit in those things. And I'd also like to just ask a question of if we were to not have those aspects through work, what's the alternative? Mm. You know, so where are we? If we are not aligned with our identities, if we are not given the chance to do things that make us feel good through work, does it does it become a completely transactional thing? Or are we in a situation where people can only do piecemeal bite-sized tasks autonomously? What does that mean for our ability to collaborate and to connect and to be creative and to use our own discretion to shape pathways of work or do we need to change what working is so that it is more hive based and segregated and and in a situation where there is a lot more diversity and, and that's what it is so i guess those were just some things on my mind as you were speaking so i think I, th I think it's a really interesting question you raised, James, because um, and it's where i get stuck quite a lot in this leadership question as well about um whether leaders should be in some senses, almost paternalistic and worrying about workers when they're not worrying about themselves. Like, oh, I'm not worried about the fact that I'm going to be burnt out for my holidays for two weeks because I'm loving life and I'm loving being this part of this team versus, you know, actually people are free and able to do what they want to do. And the place I keep coming back to is transparency and critical thinking. And I know that sounds really meta, right? Or really like random, but if people are going into things Oh, and long-term thinking. So I think organizations need to, um, and leaders, even if there is not a financial incentive to be thinking about the long-term right now for them, because they might be gone, there needs to be some kind of emphasis on long-term thinking. And that needs to be seen as leaderly more than it is. Because for me, um, the reason we're worried about these practices, right, fundamentally is because they have a longer term damage. In the moment, we're saying they're not that damaging. They might even be giving us some good stuff. But if they continue and grow, they might become dangerous. Or in the long term, for a long period of time, they might become bad for people. And if someone's not thinking about 
the people and the organization and the resources in a longer term, they're not going to worry about that. I also think uh, transparency. Um, lots of the language around internal communications in HR is about effectively convincing people to love the organization so much they don't like speak up when they want their holidays or they pretend they don't want a break or they're scared to miss out on the project. So I've had loads of staff who've been like, no, I don't want to go on holiday because I know that's going to be like a big deadline for us. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think there's a transparency about being honest about where people are trying to get people excited about work. Yeah, we want you to be excited about work, but that means that we might ask you sometimes to work more than your hours and let's have a Mm -hmm. conversation in the cold, hard light light of day prior to entering that contract. Um, And I think uh, for me as well, I think... I am astounded consistently by the number of very brilliant, very intelligent people that I have worked alongside, collaborated with and against who have not seen some of the concerns I've had about interactions with other organizations, clients, customers, Mm -hmm. and they have not been big enough that we would pull the plug on a contract, but they have been a warning sign. Mm -hmm. They have been something that I've gone, oh, I don't like the way he's talking about thinking that we can just let deadlines slip because actually everyone can just cancel their holiday. That makes me nervous about what we're, we're walking into. And yet other people just brush under the carpet and go, I'm sure it's not like that. Well, yeah. why wouldn't you just take what he said as the evidence versus you assuming it's not going to be that because you're assuming everyone's good. Mm-hmm. And so I think introducing more critical thinking into more members of organizations earlier and encouraging that, um, I think is a really good way of then giving people the freedom to have their self-actualization, have their identity opportunities whilst also making what should be a considered decision rather than that that literal cultic idea of getting swept up in it and so excited and suddenly you're immersed and you have all of these individual threads, invisible threads that that root you to this place because you're scared to give up all of the things your work's giving you. Hmm. And uh, I guess that very sort of eventually rounds me to my response yeah. to James, where there's too many things hold giving coming from work mm. that's mm. when i'm worried it seems like there needs to be uh, more people within the business within the organization or even from outside because it's not always easy when you're in the organization that is um that's actually raising these potential red flags is, is saying that right okay this is something that you need to be careful of uh, heaven knows we don't need any more audits um in businesses but um it it might be that um it's it's something that people who spend time in in other organizations need to be on the lookout for maybe it's something that um uh, I hesitate to say it because it just sounds like self-serving. Um, you know, we need more consultants to think about this. But I do, I do think there is some value in an external person looking at an organisation, saying there are some some issues here that you just need to be aware of. Um, I agree, James. That um, I, I personally don't necessarily want to live in a, a world where. There, there. You know, all business has to be stripped, or all work has to be stripped of its um, meaning and purpose. And you know, we're we're trying to separate all that. I, I think that would be a shame. That would be throwing the baby out with the bathwater, really. Um, but I think it, it's it, we we just haven't. I don't think addressed enough yet to to really flag this stuff up so i mean one of the big um the big case studies we said we wanted to visit some case studies along the way um one of the big case studies for this is is we work which i've already mentioned um 
if you've not listened to it already, um, it's definitely worth checking out the the Wondery series, which is a podcast um, called We Crashed. And there are six quite short episodes. I think it's six, maybe seven, which takes us through the story of WeWork. It, it's a business that's now been reformed, if you like. It, it's it's now what it, I guess it was always, which was a, a a rather nice place to hire a desk, you know. But but if you were to ask the original um, one of the the founders, um, Adam Newman, what what WeWork was about, he would just straight away answer, "We're changing the world." Um, and actually when you, if you have a, a decent bullshitometer, you should be able to notice what that is, shouldn't you? You know, this is a guy selling desks, but his answer to what his vision is, is to change the world. So I, I, I want to say, I love that. Not but I, it's going to come out wrong if I say that. Uh, but I love that example. Um, yeah. So there's a there's an academic called Matt Salverson who talks yeah. about grandiosity in yeah. contemporary management. And yeah. I see that statement from WeWork as like the extreme of where mm. we've got to from where we started. So yeah. like at some point, somewhere between the 50s and 70s, we worked out that if we talk about our, if we big ourselves up, in simplest terms and if we if we inspire people with big picture about what we achieve and the impact and i think if you if you trace back to the classic kennedy asking at nasa what's the cleaner doing are you cleaning the floors no i'm, I'm helping to put a man on the moon uh, yeah, exactly, yeah. i think there's a like this this introduction of 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 the way in which we talk about like our, our what we're trying to achieve um is uh has has somewhere along got horribly out of control right mm. But the 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 uh, the BSometer that you refer to, right? That coming back to the the, the the topic we're talking about at hand, which is leaders, right? It's almost definitely a challenge when leaders are the person that's issuing that stuff versus the ones that are creating a space to try and try and identify where those those are going way beyond what's okay and what's acceptable. Um, what I find fascinating and what I think is particularly questionable is if if we're not succeeding through compliance, which we clearly aren't, in stopping these things happening, where organisations, you know, I, I I was thinking there's been a couple in the news recently where I'm just like I don't answer. There's some really basic questions that any basic compliance process would have picked up and they would have sorted early doors, and I it, it, I guess you know that makes me straight away go, what is so wrong? that we're not calling out the emperor's new clothes hmm. because yeah, yeah. that's the extreme of that language. Right. So, yeah. so, so, so I, I want to pick up, I love that phrase emperor's new clothes. And, mm. and I don't know if you followed like Theranos and, and bits mm. of that. I've not been close to it, but I've seen some of the commentary and conversations that have come out of the back of this about what is the line between visionary leadership and confidence and fraud. Mm. Right. So these phrases that, that we speak about, you know, like, you know, we want to change the world or Steve Jobs wants to put a ding in the universe. Right. Lovely. <laughs> right. Like those are, are big things. And, you know, Musk's got something in his mind where he's trying to yeah. do this stuff. And and some of the, the sort of conversations that, that I see are these things like, well, you know, maybe Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos were really close. Maybe if they'd gone on for another year, they would have had that product and they needed to fake it till they made it. Right. And certainly that seems to have been some of the case with the thinking behind 
um, some of the, the work in Tesla and some of their production cycle has been a little bit more, you know, sell it, pretend it's great, and then it will be, yes. right? So we've got some of that narrative creeping in about mm. that that super leadership figure that's being so grandiose in what they're saying. And that's kind of permeated into acceptable almost as a behavior. I, I think we have people aspiring to it's, be a little I'm going to say like it's aspirational. Now, this is the this is the danger for me. You know, we're, we're into the real meat of the subject now, which is getting me really excited. This is this is the that my concern is actually, you know, we've so far on this this episode, well, I suppose we've been we've been pussyfooting around the edges on on actually middle managers who are trying to do their best. But where are they getting this from? They are getting this from the people that I guess we've looked up to like the, you know, um, well, I won't name names, but these are the, these are the people that we, these masters of the universe, you know, we've got, we've had, that is actually a, a, a name that a group of people have been called. These are masters of the universe, you know, so you've got Enron, um, just, just talking about well, essentially inventing their own language, making life so difficult to join. As soon as you join, you've suddenly become one of the elite. Now, this is a so so far we've talked about um, unreasonable vision, um, ridiculous vision. This is classic cultic behavior. You know, um, I have the secret to happiness. Come and follow me. And I'll give it to you. Um, it's not easy, though. You're going to have to go through a lot of difficulty to get there. When you're in, we love bomb you. Now, love bombing is a is a well known psychological tactic that is used in coercive relationships and in cults. It's you know you go to your first meeting, you go to your first team meeting, you go to your first whatever it is organizational get together. And everybody loves you. You know, you're so great. You're wonderful. You're one of the elite. Um, uh, Tourish talks about how business schools actually encourage this thinking, you know. Um, you know, you're one of the great people. You're going to be the, the movers and shakers of the next five years. So people actually buy into this stuff. And they they then get get into an organization where they think there's this reachable goal that they can achieve that is completely ridiculous, changing the world through renting desks. And then they are made to feel that they are now part of this. So this is the, this is your early induction into a cult. Once you're in there, you're now wrapped up in this organization. Your identity has been aligned with, with what you're trying to achieve. You are now very much part of it. Um, and it just becomes really difficult for you to leave. Now, unlike cults in an organization, there is a, in a business, you know, you do have an opportunity to leave, but there are all sorts of methods that might make that very difficult, which again, I think should be those red flags that you're talking about, Jane. Well, I think that, I think there's something really interesting generally. So a question I have quite a lot with teams is, um, and I'll ask you to this because you might know, because I don't really work with big organizations. I don't have much. Most of the organizations I work with would be SMEs, small and medium size. And quite often they, I guess, borrow practices from big organizations because they think that's the best place to do it. And they'll talk about, oh, we don't, we want to stop people leaving, right? Because that's bad. And I'm like, why is it bad? 
I mean, it's bad. It's bad. It's a bad sign about the organisation they're leaving six months in. But when you're talking about people who've been there six years and there's nowhere for them to be promoted to because that's the size of the organisation, that's a good thing. Maybe they'll come back sometime. Maybe we should help them leave. And they look at you and they go, oh, but everyone says it's it's a bad thing, right? It's a sign of a bad company. And I'm like, it's it, trust me, it's really not the bad sign of a bad company if you're like, you know, your average leave is four years. Um, and it kind of got me thinking. And I was like, actually, why do big organizations have such a problem with people leaving? And I started thinking about it. And, you know, the, the, the thing you get told in, in the sort of, you know, simplistic blogs and stuff like that, oh, it's the cost of training and it's the cost of turnover and they're cheaper and they'll stay longer and they understand the company and they know our ways of working. And then you're like, oh, they know our ways of working, do they? And it's like they know where our dirty washing is. They accept what we do. And suddenly you start to think about why it's so helpful to keep people in an organization rather than necessarily always wanting turnover in particularly some of the more functional, non-innovative sections of an organization. And you start thinking, well, actually, they can leave, but organizations are doing their damnedest to stop them. And that, that I understand that is very different from cult, but it's still, when you've got a group of people in HR who are literally responsible for stopping people leaving and finding ways to do that, that's probably something we should be a little bit worried about, shouldn't we, as leaders? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that cults do is, um, is, and I'm not saying this is, this has an analog in um, in business. They um, they may well get you to implicate yourself at some point in something that is a bit dodgy, um, or it could be outright illegal. And again, I'm not saying that businesses do this necessarily, but um, but that. So not only do you, so you were saying, Jane, that 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 the employees know where the the bodies are buried, but actually the other way around as well so one of the things that for instance in scientology um that they get their their people to do is is they have to essentially they call it auditing which is basically them telling somebody else and recording everything that they've done wrong or that they think they might have done wrong um and they have this then they have all these banks of uh, tapes of everybody's essentially confessions i was talking to somebody from a a group called Quasi Zabantu in South Africa, and they have to, um, for the children, they have to confess every day to a counsellor, in inverted commas, all of their sins over that day, because if they die overnight, they'll go to hell. Um, so they need to tell this counsellor everything that they've done wrong, including thought crimes, obviously. So this is then obviously a um, something over the top of them that, that can be held. So I don't know if there are any an- analogs to that in in business. I wouldn't like to say, but yeah, there might be. So, so I'd, just, I'd just like to jump in a little bit on the defense of big business here on both of those counts. <laughs> One, I've never been part of or seen anything that is leading people to incriminate themselves or, no. or even bringing people towards doing unethical behavior. In, in my experience, it, it's just not ever happened i'd like to think it never will happen in my experience working with large organizations and the other thing is on that piece about you know efforts to retain people again i I, i've not felt that there was anything nefarious in that in my experience of large organizations that's felt like a transactional piece around you know keeping people who can do a good job and minimizing turnover costs and things like that it's not it's not felt to me anything beyond that Mm. so i think i think i think uh 
as you know, I've never worked in an organization that scale, so I don't know uh-huh. that. It, that doesn't surprise me, and it wouldn't necessarily alleviate my fears because I think I do think there's a difference. I think when we're talking about organizations, it might not be deliberately nefarious. It might be more we sometimes don't take things as seriously as we might, hmm. and we are worried. You know, it's easier to work with what we've got and people know us. That's more what I mean. And sure. I think the retention thing that I, I particularly and I, the reason I get a bit tricky about it, I think, is I can't quite work out. Businesses generally um, are relatively sensible, if a bit slow, to pick things up, right? Clearly, there is a better system than waiting for someone goes and finds another job and then matching their salary, right? There's just a, there's got to be a better way to keep mm. people than that. That's mm. crazy. Mm. And yet that's always the way they fall to. And I think that's interesting. But the piece, you make you make a very good point. point. I don't, I don't think it's about the nefariousness and like dragging them into doing something illegal. Although, you know, I'm having, as as, as someone raised as a Catholic, I'm not having flashbacks. (laughs) But what I do think is really interesting is that there are quite often people involved in the process of learning about staff and people that absolutely are in it for the right reasons. Just Mm. like those counsellors in in that organisation you're talking about, Stephen, might not realise or really be critically thinking about what they're doing as being wrong. And actually, maybe they think they're helping the young people stay Mm. on the right path by knowing Mm. what they're getting up to and thinking about and helping shape their thoughts. Mm. You know, in our our world, in this conversation between the three of us, we probably see that a little bit as Mm. um, uh, some sense of uh, mind grooming or um, uh, conditioning. But, Mm. you know... They might be done with with good intentions. I think what's what's interesting about the leadership piece of it is that I don't think a leader has to say to do those things or indeed has to even do them or be involved or think of them themselves. I think all a leader has to do is set a ridiculously overstretched vision Hmm. and remove the boundaries of what's not acceptable. And that's why I come back to boundaries, right? Because when Enron's a classic example of that. Um, so those of you listening, uh, Enron's a classic example of goal mm. setting gone wild. Girls gone yeah. wild, I like to yeah. refer to it as someone else did in the paper. <laughs> and it's basically people just got yeah. very overexcited and went to extreme levels to achieve yeah. their goals because they were given a single blinkered view. They recruited people who were really good at achieving things if they were set specific goals. And then they just forgot all the rules basically big in in the aims or they played with the rules such that they were still doing things that were roughly legal in their little world Mm. if anyone looked at the bigger picture they'd be like whoa this is not good and you know they collapsed and i think i think there's something really interesting about that because i think all it takes is people like the example you gave we work and james was Mm. talking about um, ferris earlier all it takes is a leader just set the vision and say i'm going to find some really committed people and not tell them what they can't do. And I also, the other thing I wanted to mention, I think there's something really interesting about this is about risk. So you mentioned earlier about this idea of um, setting big visions without necessarily having the product, fake it till you make it. Mm. And I think that's massively come from the software as a service world and since the introduction of the internet. Mm. Because the risk of putting out a rubbish product on the internet is very low sunk cost because they can Mm. just do another release and bugs, bug fixes. Like in the old days, pre-internet and computers, if you bought a product and it didn't work, that was a massive cost and recall. Oh, Jane, don't get me started on this. Just don't get me started on this. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. (laughs) Unless the risk... And the cost is to the organization. If leaders don't think about the risk elsewhere, mm. that's the problem, right? Mm. So they're just, they're like, of course, of course, Elon Musk is fine about like trying it out until someone fails. A, it's not his money. 
B, he's got a load of people with a load of money behind him who is backing the idea of fake it till you make it. And C, the systems and legislations and the compliance activities that we have do not restrict that well enough. And, you know, let's, he's had a couple of, I mean, he's a great example of he's had a couple of like raps on the knuckles about the way that he's used communications to influence various things. There's been conversations. I'm not suggesting he's done anything wrong, but it's absolutely been a conversation topic in the media. And, and that piece comes back to at what point as a society do we need to put limitations and boundaries about what what leaders and organizations can and can't do yeah and and you know what like I've got a few things on my mind but I just wanted to to sort of go back to one of the very first conversations that we had or one of the first topics which was about who your stakeholders are so you know my experience of senior leaders is that we think of them as you know if we're in a large organization we think for senior leaders like a senior person running the ship But then when you get close to them, you realize they're not. Hmm. They're beholden to the investors. They're beholden to the funds that own your organization. And they too are just an intermediary. And they too feel that pressure. And they too are set targets and objectives and and are motivated to achieve those in in ways that lead them to do what they need to do. And sometimes that is creating organizations that maybe verge a little bit in this way. But again, just to, to reiterate, you know, my experience of large organizations is that they've all been really pretty good in, in this context. I, I think that I'm sure there are some that are, are really pretty bad out there, but mm. but my experience is, is that they've been really I think, pretty good. I think you're right that there, there's probably a greater risk in the smaller um, the SMEs. I, I think that's, um, that is much more likely to be a problem. We have some examples like Enron, but actually um, that's, that, that I think they are probably, probably outliers. Um, uh, to some degree, I think I think you're more likely to see it in those smaller because one of one of the things that that often is seen within a cultic group is is this charismatic leader, and in a small organisation, then you you've got much closer access or much greater access to this charismatic leader, and you know that's the other side of charisma. Really, you're more likely to have an owner manager. You're more likely yeah. to have a founder. You're more likely yeah. to have. You know, a board that isn't a professional management board yeah. that rotates and and has that governance structure to limit some of this stuff. And you're more you're you're more likely to have people who do not have the exact skills mm. because they're stretched across a couple of situations, or they're because they've been moved in. And also, yeah. the other thing which I'm really interested in is families. So, yes. where charismatic or transformational le- leadership overcrosses with family businesses, mm. and mm. a member of that family is you know, almost from, but you're going to be, you're going to be the boss. I can see it all over. You're going to be CEO. And the four, I think there's something really interesting in this of the forcing of people into positions. I see it as well with small organizations where people are expected to move into the CEO position and don't, they might not be the right fit for it, but they try and force themselves. So they adopt a CEO like, or a, or a leadership like, or what they imagine a leadership behaviors to be. And I think that's a real risk for like thinking about, where we might see concerns arise if we're not careful, because if you are already having to perform in some senses in that role, because it's not, it's not comfortable for you. um, I think that's really challenging. The one thing I would say though, that I think is really interesting about leadership. And I think James makes a great point is whether the organization is big or small, it is very rare that the people on the tip of your tongue as the leader are the people calling the shots. And that is whether it is nonprofits, that is whether it's big organizations, startups. It is it is pretty rare that the people on the front of the cover are the actual people calling the shots um, and, and having sort of the ultimate 
ability to move and shape things in a legitimate, what, legitimate in inverted commas way, as mm-hmm. in they have permission in their roles. So quite often the board is not on the magazines and doing the public speaking and all of that. Mm-hmm. Quite often charities, um, the founder might be, but the founder might not actually be the person running it. it, might be a managing director and things like that. And I think that's also really, really interesting. I've got maybe like two other little reflections just to chuck out. And I don't know that we necessarily speak about them today. One is the concept of self-regulation, I think, is is a challenge in many instances. I don't think we are good at regulating ourselves. I think that's what we're asking organizations to do. Mm-hmm. I think to some extent, that's why larger organizations are maybe in a better place to do this because they'll be held mm-hmm. to account by potentially a union organization or non-exec directors or audits of different types in mm-hmm. different ways that affect that. And I think there's something great in that external view of us as an organization, particularly when it comes to some of these softer, um, less easy to spot things. Um, so that's that's one thing that's on my mind. The other thing that's on my mind is, you know, the things that we speak about are alluring. You know, the things that help mm. us have increased self-esteem, but, but, you know, if people tell us we're good and help us feel part of something, those are, are really wonderful things in many ways, and they are attractive. And I guess I'm just wondering if there's a little bit about where we are in the world now, which feels divided, separated, um, entrenched in some ways, and and potentially increasingly sort of isolated as people are more disparate, that reduces the provision of some of those things from other sources. So if we feel, you know, trolled on social media or in conflict regularly and unsettled by the, the soup of the world that we're floating around in, if potentially it makes us more prone to or more attracted to these types of things have you got any thoughts about those, those yeah absolutely i mean and it probably it's probably going to start getting into the um that the second of our discussions really around purpose i think but uh, one of the things that i, I found very surprising I, I don't know why i haven't really come across it but reading uh, dennis turish's book was this idea of spirituality at work so I've not come across this. Maybe it's more uh, in North America that, that this is, has become a thing. But um, uh, it didn't take me long to find the CIPD had been singing its praises. Um, but f- uh, that that talk about red flags and alarm bells, as soon as I see that, I think, uh, no, thank you. Um, and I know that there seems to be two ways of approaching this spirituality at work. One is literally through religious devotion and saying that our people, you know, actually do need to have a belief in God and so on. Um, But the other one is much more secular in that, you know, meaning and purpose and and so on, something bigger than ourselves and so on. But again, we're starting to dig into a very personal part of us that maybe we question, actually, is that where should work be encroaching but i think to your point james maybe it is encroaching because we we have a lack of that in the rest of our lives and maybe that is that is why that's starting to to be seen as as a place to to engage in that stuff yeah let's definitely pick that up in our um Mm. conversation on that point and i think i think it it, it's a great point and one of the places that i'd love to explore in that when we come back is around what we might learn from things like online radicalism and because absolutely without question the evidence from from some of the projects in the uk has been it has been various uh i guess needs not being met that has allowed people to be identified as 
I guess, more open stroke vulnerable to that kind of activity. And in some senses, what would be really interesting is to think about what is it in recruitment processes in organizations that might unintentionally be seeking some of those things out by asking about things like where do you find your meaning and purpose or what, mm. what matters to you about work or why do you want to work for this organization because effectively they might be accidentally seeking some kind of declaration of commitment mm. um and that all of those i think what is interesting though is james was talking about organizations big organizations generally not you know not not being bad places and i totally agree mm. what i think is really interesting and i think leaders only leaders can really be responsible for thinking about because they're the only ones in that position of helicopter view is what are all the little tiny things that go on in our organization that actually when you look at them individually are fine and absolutely within the rules and okay but when you suddenly look at them as a massive picture think huh we're making it really hard for people to leave us and we're probably avoiding rewarding in an equal exchange unless we absolutely have to Right. And I, I don't think that means that anybody in the organization is necessarily doing anything wrong. And I think that's what makes it so hard. It Absolutely. just means no one's it's looking like, at the bigger um, picture. It's like all those Goldman Sachs uh, first years in New York last year who were like, oh, we're working 90 hours a week. This is dreadful. We've got to change the culture. And the boss just says, we'll just give you some more money. And, and yeah. then that story's gone away. <laughs> something in something in there. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. I, I think the, the other thing perhaps to, uh, to pick up for next time um, is the... Uh, it, it could be very simple. You know, in some cases, I think uh, it, it is probably quite simple in that some of these organizations, so I'm not talking here about the sorts of organizations that I've worked in, probably not you guys either, but, um, you know, there are some organizations that are actually set up as essentially contracts. You know, they are they are very simply um, lying to people. And uh, there's often a... Um, some money that needs to be paid in order to go on a training course in order to learn that the secret source that you're going to then be able to sell um, and you're going to have to go on an away day for three days in you know far away Hampshire or something and um, and you're going to you know you're going to experience a change uh, of your lifetime and there's there that very charismatic person there who does all the things so the other side of charisma is the um the communication stuff so uh antonakis is a very good uh name in this area so good to look him up but um he talks about um the way that charisma charismatic leaders communicate and and that's often a good thing because they use stories and parables and illustrations and they take risks with their communication. So they might say, tell jokes or they might say things that are like shocking. And, the, the, and these are the sorts of things that you may well get on an away day in some marketing business or some self-development course or some slightly off-the-wall management program. Um, and and actually, it is all smoke and mirrors, and the people that are, are organising it know that there are those organisations around, and I think that's that's an area that we we shouldn't ignore. No, I don't think we should, and I think I think what's really interesting is what's the difference between them and organisations that are making billions of pounds, but also have elements of red flags around culty mm. practices. Well, yeah. the product's the only difference, right? Mm. 
So actually, a lot of the behaviours you described, a load of those behaviours and practices, one of the challenges we have in this area is that there are some very thriving, successful organisations under under what we would consider traditional standards, so profit, margin, mm. Uh, mm. market share, stuff like that. They're doing really well, and they're doing exactly the same as some of these organisations that have a terrible product and do terrible things. Does that make what they're doing wrong, or does it really just mean that as long as you've got a great product and a great service, you get away with anything? And I, mm. I, I'm not saying it is. I don't know. But well, I comes, do think that makes yeah. it a very difficult area to pin down. It comes back to James's question as well, doesn't it, about, you know, what are you actually selling? Are you selling a, a widget or are you selling a, a lifestyle choice? You know, what is actually is it that you're you're selling? And I think, um, yeah, we are so we've become so sophisticated at that, that, yeah, it, it's very difficult to actually know what it is you're buying these days. Brilliant. okay good right well we've um we, we've we've talked about that for about an hour and 10 minutes or something so uh i think we're, we're all kind of used up now um i've really enjoyed that conversation Super um fun. of course we're not going to solve the problem um or come to any hard conclusions but hopefully we've given everybody a bit of food for thought and um yeah i look forward to talking about the, the next subject I, I guess maybe meaning and purpose might be a good one it to feels like it flows next. next doesn't yeah. it yeah so let's let's do that and um, yeah thank you very much and thank you for listening everyone thanks everyone bye everyone lovely time <laughs>